Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel you're going to find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is going to be on there. You're going to find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts all that you can follow along with and the best part is that it's completely free they're also around 10 to 20 minutes long meaning if you're short of time you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout new workouts will go live on the channel every tuesday and thursday and they're going to be accompanied by an amazing backdrop which i'm sure you're all going to enjoy so if you want to find the channel just search elliot hasoon into youtube and you'll find it very easily and please subscribe it makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 259 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Gloria Zhang. Gloria is a psychotherapist, host of the Inner Child podcast, and a relationship coach. Gloria's journey with healing begun due to some very turbulent years in the early stages of her life. These challenges persisted throughout her teen years and into the early stages of her 20s, until she regained her power and began her lifelong journey of healing and now helps hundreds of others heal and change the course of their lives. In this episode, you can expect to learn how you can begin to heal your inner child, how to maintain a lifelong journey of self-care and self-love, along with Gloria's perspective on the modern dating industry and apps such as Tinder and Bumble. So without further ado, Gloria Zhang. Gloria Zhang, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, Elliot. Hey, it's awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. My pleasure. I'm really excited to get into today's conversation. And for those who may have not come across your work or yourself before, can you explain a little bit about yourself in terms of who you are and what it is that you do? Yes, definitely. So I actually started off as a therapist and eventually became a relationship coach. Specifically, I help people who have a pattern of sabotaging or having very chaotic uh, relationship patterns. Um, So that's sort of my thing. But at some point along my journey, I kind of became the inner child person. I had a podcast that's literally called the inner child podcast that started during COVID. Um, I, we were chatting about it before this episode, but it kind of blew up unexpectedly during COVID. And I think during the pandemic, I think a lot of people became very self introspective and we had a lot of time to think about our problems, our past and where it came from. And I think the idea that a lot of us carry baggage from our childhoods um, is something that resonated with a lot of folks. So I kind of became the the inner child person unexpectedly. <laughs> yeah, I write for magazines. I do a lot of relationship talks and I'm on this amazing show right now called the Simply Fit Podcast with Elliot Hassoud. And here I am. Uh, super exciting. And um, I wanted to go right back to the where it all began because you didn't become the inner child person just by accident. So I want to go back to your story and how your journey began and how you become ultimately the person who was ready to take the throne when it came to being in the chair of the inner child person. <laughs> <laughs> I would say my journey started when I turned 18 years old finally. And 
I decided that my goal in life was to find my Prince Charming and get married before I turned 24. That was literally my goal in life. Now, what I didn't tell you is I came from a very, very chaotic household growing up. My parents were immigrants. You know, maybe you can relate to a little bit of that, but it wasn't just the fact that my parents were starting over in a brand new country. I come from almost like a family tradition of very broken marriages, like everything on the list. Like there's alcoholism, gambling problems, infidelity, like anything you can think of on the list uh, is something that was normal for me inside my family. And I wanted to escape all that. So I became a straight A student. I, I thought I'm going to become this, you know, successful person. And I am going to be the person to break this pattern by finding my Prince Charming and get married before 24. Yeah, I didn't even get close. <laughs> right. I turned 25. And at that point, all my friends were getting married, like they were having kids moving on with their lives. And I became the situationship friend. It almost became a running joke of how bad my relationships were, right? Anytime I met someone new, my friends would kind of laugh at me and say, oh, okay, let's see how long this one lasts. And it just didn't, it almost seemed statistically impossible how bad my relationships were. <laughs> now, like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just so bad. Like, if you get it, you get it. I'm sure there are folks listening who kind of understand what I mean. And I was so desperate, Elliot. And the worst part was I was actually working as a therapist at this time, too. So I was helping other people with their relationships, but I couldn't get my own shit together. And when I was turning 26, I was so desperate. I paid a relationship guru $1,000 <laughs> to turn me into an irresistible woman. <laughs> Right. And I got all this coaching of how I wasn't feminine enough, how I wasn't soft and sweet enough, and that I should just please them more. Right. That was the advice I was, oh, just be nicer, be sweeter. And it worked for a little while. I actually met this guy who I ended up dating for a whole year using all these, you know, techniques from this group. And then at the 12 month mark, I asked if he wanted to meet my family. And he said, but you're not my girlfriend. Ooh. <laughs> Next day, he broke up with me over text. I checked on Facebook and he was in a relationship with another woman. Damn. And so I had a huge meltdown and I actually went to a therapist at that time. I had this, my rock bottom meltdown, I was crying, I was sobbing. And my therapist just kind of looked at me, you know, let me do my thing. And then he said something that completely changed my world. He said to me, you know, I'm so sorry, Gloria, this guy that you, this Chris guy that you were seeing, he sounds a lot like your dad. And I can't even tell you what that sentence did to me. That was the first time in 26 years that someone finally connected my shitty childhood with my shitty adult relationships. I, even though I was a therapist, I'd never made that connection before. And I even used to work with kids as well. And that's how I discovered the inner child. That's how my story started. And once I started doing the work, four months later, I found my person, the, the love of my life, who I'm still with today. Um, we have a great relationship, but that was the turning point. And that's that's the start of the inner child podcast and my journey. <laughs> that's incredible. And I'm intrigued and curious because I'm sure that if you were looking at someone else's journey, the way that you potentially were living yours, you probably would have identified the link. Do you think part of it was to kind of block out the trauma that you were experiencing? It was like part of you didn't want to accept 
the quote-unquote shitty childhood, there was part of you that didn't want to see the link between you choosing partners that are potentially similar to your dad and those toxic patterns. Do you think there was part of you that was blocking it out and it was almost hard for you to see that? Because I almost imagine if you were doing the therapy, like you probably identify that in a lot of other people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting you say that because I hear that a lot from clients. You know, when you grow up in a toxic toxic environment, it kind of just becomes normal for you. And sometimes you don't even realize how bad it was until someone points out and they say, well, that's, that's kind of messed up, right? That's pretty messed up. And it didn't even occur to me that what happened to me wasn't normal. Like it was normal for folks who had gone through this type of chaotic upbringing, but it wasn't normal in the sense that a lot of people didn't experience this. And there, there is a lot of blocking out, right? The mind has so many defense mechanisms to try to protect us from memories that might hurt you. And so, yeah, I definitely blocked a lot of it out. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I was actually going to start on the topic of self-love, but considering we've touched on uh, the inner child first, I want to begin there. So for those who maybe have not heard the term before, who is your inner child and why are they so important? Yeah. Oh my goodness. The inner child is so important because basically what it means is there's no such thing as adult problems. Any sort of issue that you're experiencing right now, whether, you know, with fitness, right, not being able to stick to routine, not being able to eat healthy, not being able to make money, not being able to sustain a relationship. I can almost always trace that back to a pattern that originated probably long before you could even speak words, right? That came long before you even became an adult. Everything that we deal with as adults usually stemmed from something that happened to us, whether it's big or small as a kid. And so what the inner child is, it's not a literal child, it's a metaphor, right? And the metaphor is that we are still like little kids walking around in adult bodies a lot of the time. And a lot of the needs that you didn't get met as a kid actually carry with you into adulthoods. And we continue repeating these same cycles and patterns um, long into our adult lives. And that's what the inner child is. And in terms of the challenges that we have and the healing that needs to be done, what does that process look like? I'm sure it's absolutely different for everyone given the different experiences that we have. So where do we get started with even acknowledging that our adult problems are actually inner child problems and where does the journey of healing really begin? Yeah, such a great question. So the simplest way that I would recommend uh, even folks listening to this to start is whatever problem you're experiencing right now, to think back to the earliest time that you think it started. So when it comes to dealing with these inner child wounds, obviously there are a multitude of problems that people can experience growing up, but it actually usually boils down to four core wounds, as I like to call it. Um, And I call them the abandonment wounds, neglect, guilt, or trust. And it means that at some point growing up, usually before we turn seven or eight years old, that's when a lot of our internal beliefs really solidify. You have experienced these four needs that were not met in you as a kid, right? So you might've felt that um, you were abandoned by your parents. You might've felt that you were ignored or that you weren't heard or listened to. You might've been guilt tripped as a kid or things might've happened that led you to mistrust the people around you. And they can be big traumas like being adopted or parents getting divorced, things like that. But it can also be very small things as well. 
right? For example, if you had a parent who was really busy with their business or with their work, and they always came home 10 minutes late, right? And even though they apologized, you carry this memory with you of they were always 10 minutes late, right? And you start to build that feeling of not good enoughness or mistrust. Now, even if you are still, you're aware of this as an adult, even if you can rationalize and say, well, my mom was busy, right? My mom was trying to make a living. Kids don't understand that. Children see themselves as sort of the center of the world, right? They don't really understand all of these complicated adult ideas. And children will almost always put the blame on themselves. That's why when parents get divorced, kids always blame themselves. That's just what kids do. And if we don't take a look at and kind of resolve what happened to you as a kid, we're going to bring them into our adult lives. So sorry, the short answer (laughs) is to think about what are the things that happened to you as a kid that really stand out to you, right? You're going to have a couple of memories that kind of pop into your head right away. um, And to think about what that experience taught you as a child. Yeah, I think that's an amazing place to start. And if we are looking back and we're identifying many different uh, aspects. Is there any key place to begin? Would you say it's the one that's maybe causing you the most challenges in your adult life? Because I find that it's almost like an onion layer that you kind of keep peeling back and keep peeling back and and reveal more and more. So is there something that we should start with first or should it be the one that's most obvious? Yeah, probably the most obvious one um, because you know I think with the, this day and age, there's, there's a lot of delayed gratification. Folks are mo- most interested in resolving the wound that causes the most issues in their current life, right? But actually, one of the exercises that I have my clients do is something called the timeline exercise. Um, it can be a little bit, you know, emotionally difficult, but I actually have people go through all of the ages, starting from birth to their current age, to actually write down what are all of the most significant things that happened to you at each stage and age of your life. And this is where we actually start to uncover patterns. So I think the key word here is pattern. And what most people discover is that it's not you it's not always just one thing that happened but there's a pattern of things that have happened in their lives where maybe they always got bullied at school or maybe they always felt like they weren't doing something enough whether it was at work or at school or we're with families and the feeling that exists within that pattern is sort of what they discover through this timeline so yeah that's one way that you can kind of dig into um, all of those wounds Absolutely. And then going into the more practical side of things, let's say I start to go through my timeline. I start to discover a few trends and patterns that are starting to appear. Maybe I'm picking terrible relationships because of my example of a relationship during my parenthood was, yeah, seeing my parents was not the most ideal. Where are we going there? Is it a case of then talking to that inner child? Is it a case of going to talk to your parents? Like, What is the next step? Yeah, for sure. So that's the easy part, right? The easy part is figuring out what the problem actually is. What happens next is actually learning to build a sense of safety around that thing. So whenever I talk about safety, people are always like, what, what does that mean? Like, I, I'm safe now. Like, you know, what do you mean it's, it's not safe? It means that because you didn't get those specific needs met, you're actually kind of treating yourself the same way. So I'm going to try to use a more relevant example for your audience, Elliot, because I know a lot of folks here are interested in wellness and health and fitness. So, you know, I've worked with clients 
who, you know, we started off talking about the relationship stuff, but then we discover they have a really hard time sticking to an exercise routine, right? They, they'll, they'll like go in crazy one week and like hardcore workout. And then two weeks later, it's like they burn out and they just fall off the wagon. And it's just rinse and repeat. Like it just keeps happening. Like every single month they go through this cycle. And I, and I would think that's interesting. That's, that's almost exactly like how you treat relationships, right? You go in hot and heavy and then it burns out and then you fall off and then you go find someone else. You know, it's, there's a pattern here of chaos. That's the word here. And the reason that, and, you know, I think when we were talking at the beginning, you had asked me in an email about why people are addicted to chaos or how we, how we fall off the wagon. We get addicted to chaos because we grew up in chaos. That's kind of the short answer. And so your brain actually becomes wired to find chaos more comfortable than safety, right? And then safety kind of feels boring almost a little bit. It feels like routine, like doing the same thing over and over. There's no excitement, right? There's there's no spark around that. And that's sort of where the work starts, right? So we've kind of identified the pattern. And now the work is, well, how do we make safety feel exciting or feel normal to you. Um, And that's sort of where people get a little bit tripped up. And the way that I work with this is not to force people to stick to routine. Cause I mean, come on, like we live in the digital age. All you have to do is listen to the simply fit podcast or go on YouTube and you can find a routine, right? It's not about the information, but it's about the fact that if this is a problem for you, you think that stability and structure is unsafe because it's boring, right? You don't find routine safe because you feel like someone's taking freedom away from you. You feel restricted by routine. You feel restricted by schedule um, because that was never established to be a good and safe thing to you growing up, right? Like you see how this is all starting to tie back to being a a kid. And then people start realizing other memories of, of, oh, like whenever there was a period of safety at home. It, it was just the, the calm before the storm, right? Like I couldn't even trust when things were stable because it meant that some big, crazy explosion was about to happen, right? So I couldn't stay in the safety. Um, and so we sabotage and that's what sabotage is. It's to protect ourselves, ironically, because it actually does the opposite. Um, and so uh, I guess the solution here is getting comfortable <laughs> with being uncomfortable. That sounds like a pretty scary solution. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary solution, right? And so in the relationship aspect, it almost sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I have people channel their need for chaos into other outlets instead. And so I say, you know what? If you have this in- inherent need for chaos, go look at crypto instead, right? Start getting interested in the stock market. Like maybe, you know, start a business, right? Go on a roller coaster, find different outlets to kind of get your fix and get that need and realize that your relationship or your fitness routine doesn't have to be your source of excitement because, you know, people who grew up in these, with these chaotic things, it's, it's always going to be a part of us, right? I became an entrepreneur. That's how I get my fix, right? (laughs) You know, I have a high tolerance for risk makes me a great entrepreneur, but then I've trained myself to use those outlets to get that fix and see my relationship, my fitness routine as something like a home base that I can come, come back to instead. So that's actually how I work with people with, with um, this whole chaos and inner child wound thing. 
No, I really love that because one of the examples I can resonate with is a lot of my clients will say that they look for their novelty and excitement for being a foodie and going out to eat all the time. And I'm like, you know what? There's so much to enjoy within food. But if food is your only form of excitement in your life, then you know we've got to really reflect on that and whether that's going to be a long-term and sustainable thing. I mean, food's great, but at the same time, it shouldn't be your only source of pleasure and excitement in life. So I can 100% relate to that. And the same goes for the chaos side of things as well. It's like in the past where I've worked for relatively stable jobs and with structured hours and kind of the duties that I would have to fulfill, it would be incredibly boring and plain to me. So then it would be a case of me looking for structure in certain areas to find that stability that I'm yeah I can thrive within but also needing that element of chaos so I think that's a really important takeaway is that you're not trying to remove all the chaos from your life because I feel like that is usually the counterproductive thing to do because then you just tend to create more because you can never you know you can never permanently have uh, stability right so the final question I have on the inner child side of things is let's say that you are currently a parent or even myself who wants to be a parent in the future how do you not mess up your child how do you make sure that you do your best to meet their needs so they don't end up Super, super broken. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Such a good question. And I, I actually do work with a lot of parents for that very reason, right? They think, oh my gosh, like I want this pattern to end with me. I want this to, to end with me. And, you know, I used to work with kids as well. And what I will say to the parents listening, wait, are you a parent, Elliot? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. But, but it's coming. It might be coming in the future. So <laughs> kids learn from watching you. And that's why I, I truly believe that the solution to this is learning to become regulated and safe within yourself, right? I think parents who feel insecure about dealing with their own mental health, they'll want to rely on books and mental health programs. And, you know, kids don't need that unless you're not setting that example for them, right? And so the best way to end the pattern is to lead by example. You know, if you think back to when you were a kid, even when your parents were kind of like whispering and doing stuff, on, you still saw that, right? Like you could hear them, you watched the way that they behaved. We internalize like sponges um, up until the age of eight, as I, I mentioned before. Kids are just sponges, right? They watch their parents. They watch the way they talk to themselves. They watch the way that their parents talk to other people, how they treat themselves. And the best way to help your child <laughs> is really to get good within yourself, right? Because that's how kids learn at the end of the day. So I maybe that's not the answer folks were hoping to hear, right? But <laughs> I really believe that in, investing in your own mental health, investing in yourself and leading through example, that's really the best way to, to end the cycle. No, I think it's a super beautiful answer because it's exactly the same answer I give within health and fitness. And they have so many parallels between them. They're like, how can I get my partner to start eating healthier? How can I get my kids to start eating healthier? I'm like, have you reflected on how you've been eating? They're like, but you only started this journey three months ago, right? Your, your child is 10 to 15 years old now. They saw 10 to 15 years of you not taking care of their health. Just because you've made that change doesn't mean they're going to catch up so quickly. So no, it's a, it's a really interesting and probably not the answer, like you said, people want, but at the end of the day, I think it is just a case of leading by example and then being open and ready for the interest that people will find. Because if you are, even if I imagine if you've got older children, they'll still 
see the difference within you. And I find that with health and fitness is like, even with people who have partners, they're like, Oh, Elliot or whoever is looking healthier. They, they seem to be sleeping better. They seem to have more energy. I want a bit more of that. So once you can lead by example and also show the return on investment from that, I think that people will want to follow along as well. So I want to transition into some more practical steps on the self-love journey. It seems to be something that's very hard to define in these days because sometimes it's self-love in the terms of self-indulgence, maybe. It can be in the form of self-soothing. So what is your definition of self-love and how can we begin a productive and healthy journey down that, that channel? Yeah, it's almost become like a buzzword, right? It's like mm-hmm. hashtag, like self-love. Everyone <laughs> wants to talk about self-love. I, I totally know what you mean, Elliot. And it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine too, right? Where folks think of self-love and self-care as just taking a bubble bath or you know taking a spa day, but it's it kind of misses the point of what it really means. The way I'd answer this question is, how do we even define love, <laughs> right? Self-love is just a version of love. And to me, you know, from doing this work and from being in so many relationships, love is, it's a commitment and an action is really what it is, right? When you are committed to someone, you love them. Um, Even if you have like a dog, for example, right? Or a cat and the dog pisses all over the, 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 you know, living room floor and you're so angry in the moment and you don't feel like cleaning up after them, but you still do because you're committed to that relationship, right? You're committed to loving and being there and taking care of that being or person or child, whatever that relationship is. And it's no different with ourselves. Self-love is a commitment to taking care of you, right? It's got nothing to do with how we feel. And I always think that Feelings sometimes follow the actions that the more we take care of ourselves, the more we start to develop, right? Feelings of genuine love for ourselves. And taking care of ourselves is a minute to minute choice of understanding what it is that you need in that moment. So, for example, now I, I feel like I'm talking a bit funny because my um I have this leftover brace from braces I had like 20 years ago and it broke yesterday. So it's like stabbing me in the tongue right now. And so I know that what I need is I got to drink a lot more water today as I'm talking here (laughs) on this podcast with you. And, you know, I have to, I have to call the dentist. I have to take care of myself and put myself first, even though I have a really busy week right? That's self-love. The opposite of self-love would be, oh, I got to do all these meetings. I got to work and I'm going to put myself last, right? That would be the opposite of self-love. So yeah, I rambled a little bit, but self-love really is the commitment to taking care of yourself just as much as any other relationship in your life. And it sounds so simple when you say it, but like you said, it's about a case of putting yourself first as a case of listening to your needs. But most people, and I think we've all had this experience is where we put everyone's needs before our own. And we don't see ourselves as a priority. We don't see ourselves as someone deserving all of those actions and behaviors that might seem like like self-indulgent, that seem narcissistic to a degree. So how can we start prioritizing ourselves and actually understanding that we are worthy of having our needs met ultimately? Oh, such a great question. And just to bring it full circle, you can start to see how those people-pleasing tendencies start from childhood, right? Mm. Um, From either, you know, watching your parents, your parents that sacrificed themselves and they didn't put themselves first. So now you kind of do the same thing. Yeah, I think it really starts with a lot of people are not even aware of what their own needs are because it's almost like they've been indoctrinated their entire lives to look and 
see what other people need. And I I was the same way, right? I I was like a textbook people pleaser. And so really what you do is you do that entire process that you do with other people, except you do it with yourself. (laughs) It's like this mind blowing, you know, mind blowing revelation, right? Who would have thought it? You actually ask yourself, I know, right? Who would have thought, you know, you always ask other people, how are they feeling? Why don't you ask yourself that? Like, how are you feeling right now? Maybe you're feeling tired or burnt out or hungry, right? Or thirsty. And based on how you're feeling, what is something that you would need to make that feeling feel better? It's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I don't really need a bubble bath. Maybe I need to tell my toxic friend that they're a piece of shit, (laughs) right? Maybe I need to end that relationship. Maybe I actually need to call the doctor and book an appointment, or maybe I just need to take a 10 minute nap, right? What's the feeling and what's the action that would lead to making that feel better? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Yeah, it seems super simple. And I'd love if you could, obviously this is a very vague question, but could you give some examples of non-typical forms of self-care? Because like you said, that booking the doctor's appointment is such a crucial one that probably people wouldn't identify. They would put, like you said, bubble baths, meditation, eating the food that they want in that bracket, but they wouldn't put something as important as booking a doctor's appointment or taking themselves to the gym, for example, even if they don't feel like it. So can you go through some non-traditional self-care practices that and self-love practices that we could start to adopt? Oh my gosh, gosh, yes, of course. I'll start by saying this, and it's that the thing that you are resisting is probably the thing that you need to do the most. That's usually how it plays out. The most kind of non-traditional thing of self-care that that's actually the most important is setting boundaries. A lot of the time when folks are struggling with, I'm not feeling good, I don't know how to put myself first, um, it's actually with setting boundaries with people or with themselves. Um, So what that would look like is if you're feeling really drained at work or in a certain relationship, you're not really speaking up in a way that is integrity with yourself and you're allowing yourself to be burnt out because you haven't vocalized those boundaries, right? You haven't vocalized those expectations and those feelings and those problems that you're having. So boundaries would probably be number one. Uh, on like number one, the king of the list of self-care activities. Um, some other ones would actually just be doing nothing, right? Which also kind of sounds counterintuitive, but um, you probably work with people like this as well. We work with a lot of high achievers who are like always constantly doing and hustling and grinding. And sometimes the best thing to do is to go slow to go fast, right? You just need to disconnect from everything and just do nothing for the whole day. And sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, I love that. That's such a non-traditional approach and something that, like you said, can counterproductively seem so helpful. And all of these things, this process of healing, this process of working with your inner child, the process of giving yourself those practices that are going to meet your needs, they all seem very motivating when you first hear about them. But just like health and fitness, sustainability long-term is the key. So if we can get started with these quite productively, which I think most people can, how can we make sure that they are lifelong? How can we maintain those boundaries? How can we integrate that self-knowing of what we need one, two, three, four, five years down the line? Because I think that's the real key to long-term success, right? And I assume that you've had a lot of experience of doing that. So I'm, I'm keen to know, A, how you've done it personally, and B, what advice do you give to your clients? Yeah, that that's really the magic question, right? Of how do we make all these things last? Yeah, I think that's such um that question gets asked a lot in this our self-development world, right? Because you know, even though you and I are in different, slightly different industries, I kind of fall under this umbrella of 
human transformation, right? People want the transformation, but they also want it to last. I'm curious what you think about my answer as well, Elliot, but I really believe that the key to transformation is coming back to questioning our beliefs over and over again. You know, everything that we've been talking about today, they, it all has kind of this common theme of what it is that I believe about myself and the world. You know, whether we're talking about the inner child thing or fitness or relationships, it all kind of boils down to what we believe is possible. So if we believe that things don't last, or we believe that if we fall off the wagon, it means that we're a failure, right? If we believe that having one bad day means that we have to start all over again, then it kind of becomes, um, what, what was it called? Like the, the upper ceiling effect, right? We actually are creating our own you know, unhappy ending. But if we can come back to the work that we're doing and rewrite what it means to have one bad day or even one bad month, then it's impossible to fail, right? Because what we're learning, we can't unlearn them. We just get back on the wagon and we try again and we try again. And it's a process, you know, healing for the long term isn't about getting it right one time and now you're right off into the sunset, you're good for life. But it's about getting back there every time you, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? We always fall off the wagon, but it's about believing that falling off the wagon isn't a bad thing so that we have the courage to get up and try again. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about what you think about that and how it relates to your niche. Yeah. I was trying to dig through many of the different attributes and traits, even within myself and my clients who have had long-term results. And I think fundamentally it does come down to that updated belief system. I think the one thing I was going to lead with was it has to be something that you value and understand the importance of. So when it comes to your health and wellness, a lot of people can get motivated to look a little bit better, but they maybe can see that for five years. But when, when the children come along or when this tough time in life comes along, they're priority of being in shape doesn't go beyond the aesthetic side of things. So they don't value it quite as much as they did when they were younger. So I think, like you said, it does come down to updating your thought process of understanding that your health and wellness is needs to be a conscious commitment. It needs to be something that's lifelong and you are important enough to put your workouts in your week every single week to prioritize your nutrition, your sleep and all these type of things. So I think everything it comes back to is an updated thought process on why you are the priority and why this thing is the priority. So yeah, I was trying to find some like maybe some holes in that <laughs> argument, but it's impossible. It all comes down to the same thing. And it's just like, yeah, that updated belief system and also understanding that even those prior things that you thought before, like, yeah, falling off the wagon means that you are off for days, weeks, months on end, but understanding that it's not about falling off. It's about how quickly can we come back on? And also how can we reduce the severity during the time? Because I think I say to my clients all the time, the reality is, is you are going to fall off and you're probably going to fall off again and you're going to fall off again. But the only time you really quote unquote fail is if you choose not to go back on again. And I think, again, that belief system of understanding that it's always a choice is another key one as well. Yeah, that that's exactly it, right? It's how do we get back up that seven or eighth time? I can draw a parallel from that example you just shared about, you know, having kids and having to start over. I do sometimes, you know, my I help people find meet their life partners and I get questions sometimes of, well, what if this relationship doesn't work out as if that's, you know, sort of the kryptonite and I say, well, it might not work out, <laughs> you know, like who knows? Like, I mean, there's so many different factors, but what's important is you've learned how to f- make a healthy relationship. And 
And so you can do it again, right? And we don't, you know, my first healthy relationship didn't work out, but the second one did, right? And it's it's not the end all be all, but you've learned the skills now. You have the tools, the knowledge, and it's about trusting that you've done it once before, you can do it again. And that is the definition of success. I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't agree more. And it's the same with the health and fitness side of things as well. It's that you even said it in one of your quotes is that you're not starting from scratch, you're starting from experience. And I think that that's the key thing <laughs> yeah. to remember, right? It's, it's a beautiful quote and it illustrates that point. And I want to make a smooth transition over to what you just t- touched on, which is relationships. I recently met the love of my life as well. And funnily enough, I was one of your... Thank you. <laughs> I was one of your typical clients before who would have come to you and be like, I'm too busy. I'm this high achiever. I'm not going to be relatable. I've got a podcast. I've got my coaching business. I've got X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to dive into that in a little bit, but I want to get started with what your thoughts are on the modern dating industry and dating apps. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I think folks are a little bit surprised to hear when I say I, I love the dating apps. <laughs> Um, that's actually how I met my partner was on Tinder, surprisingly, right? Because I think people think of Tinder as it's like a hookup app, right? <laughs> I have to interrupt you and say that we share the exact same story. So that's... Uh, oh my gosh, no we, way. <laughs> we're both, yeah, we're, we're Tinder success stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly. And, you know, like I find that the same people that talk badly about Tinder are the same kind of people that talk badly about social media and the internet. You know, these are all just tools, right? And tools have pros and cons to them. You know, what I'll say about, I I think the apps, if used correctly, and I do a lot of work around how to actually, you know, take a trauma-informed approach so that you're not burning out. If used correctly, dating apps can beeline your journey to finding the right person. Because in what other situation, you know, can you filter through and meet like hundreds of people at once? Like there, there is, there is none, right? You can go to a speed dating event, and even then, you're kind of limited to. 20 to 30 people in that area. But with the internet, again, if used correctly is amazing. Like I know so a lot of my clients have found their significant others um, through like Bumble or Hinge or one of these apps. So I personally love them. (laughs) Yeah, no, I can certainly relate. And what was really funny is if you asked me before, it was an interesting story, which I'll, I'll spare the details for now, but maybe I'll tell you another time. But I was going through phases where I would be deleting the apps, re-downloading them. Like, nope, I'm going to find someone in a super organic. I'm going to find someone in an organic way. I'm going to go approach someone at a coffee shop, or fate is just going to drop them right in front of me. And I love the fact that none of that happened because it was almost proof that it's like, no, Elliot, you weren't right here. You know, it's like you were very close-minded and you only had a single view of this. So life is going to show you that actually maybe you should need to rethink that it's not down to the the tool that you're using, it's your approach to the tool, right? So on that note, you mentioned like there's one way of using it, but I also know there's another way of using it. So when it comes to the side of things where it does get a bad reputation, do you have any kind of tips and techniques where people can avoid like dating burnout, where they can avoid meeting the wrong type of people as well? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's so funny that we have similar stories with it. Just it's all like the universe kind of putting us in our place, right? <laughs> to humble us a little bit. You know, I talked about how online dating gives us opportunity, and I think that's the the volume of people is where these apps start to get this bad reputation because in organics settings, you might meet, you know, three people in a day and maybe only one of them is a bad egg just statistically. Right. Now, when you go on the internet, you might meet a hundred people in a day, and now thirty of them, you know, statistically turn out to be like emotionally unavailable, mar- you know, married people, people looking for a unicorn <laughs> in their relationship, whatever it is. And so it starts to make us believe that a lot of people out there, you know, are like kind of toxic, right? But in reality, you know, fifty percent of the population has a secure attachment style which means 50, half of the population on earth are people who would make great partners, you know, but I would find that toxic people tend to be a little bit louder on the dating apps, right? They're the ones that are going to, you know, message you first, or they're going to love bomb you and like, like, right. Try to grab your attention. It's right. Like, it's sort of like at a bar, it's sort of like the the weird people or like the toxic people are the ones that are going to like come at you, right? <laughs> They're going to go for it. And I think that's just kind of how it works. So what I would say as I guess some, some tips that I give to clients is when someone has a bit of a red flag profile, don't even entertain talking to that person, right? Don't even, don't even, you know, see how it goes. Like uh, there's a lot of red flags on apps. Like if someone says not looking for a relationship, right? If someone doesn't have a bio, if someone just links their Instagram and says, go follow me, right? Don't even entertain, don't even waste your time with those, right? You just, you want to swipe right away. And I find that people just, they, they swipe yes anyway, thinking that it doesn't cost them anything, but it actually does, right? It sucks away your time and energy. And those little, little, those little disappointments start to build up into dating burnout. And I find that a lot of dating burnout has nothing to do with big things that happen. It's these little actions you're doing that are sucking your time and energy. So that, that's sort of, I guess, one little tip I would share. Yeah, I think it's, it's super, super valuable. And like you said, is that you might have only met three people in a real life situation. So given the fact that you can swipe and hopefully you might just need to expand your location if you do end up running out of people and you live in a a big enough city or town that you don't end up running out of people, then there's going to be way more people than you would have experienced in reality anyway. So I think it's a valuable, uh, valuable step. And then obviously the progression of that, let's say you do potentially go down the route of dating someone who did have red flags, or maybe they didn't have red flags and you ended up in a casual encounter. And I don't think this is discussed enough in terms of our thoughts and our perspectives on casual sex, because I know that you mentioned that this could be a form of self-harm. And I was really interested to get your take on that because I've, I've not heard many people discuss it. So can you dive into that? I'm talking in relation to your Instagram post, but if you've got any ways in which you can expand, that'd be amazing. Well, thanks for checking out my post, Elliot. <laughs> yeah, um, yes, yeah, certainly a lot of folks had reactions to, to hearing me say that, right? That, yeah, sometimes casual sex can be a form of self-harm, especially if we believe that it's, it's a, a tool to get someone to choose us. I think this is sort of the hookup culture that maybe you wanted to talk about. And that's one, that is one of the downsides of dating apps is it makes it a lot easier to just hook up with people, right? It's in this day and age, it's 
easier to find a hookup buddy than to order pizza online. All you have to do is, is swipe and there's certain apps for that. Now, I think when people encounter few bad eggs, they start to develop this belief that everyone out there is just wanting to hook up. And this is for guys and girls. This is not gender exclusive. They think that everyone out there wants to hook up with them. And they start to internalize this belief that I have to sleep with these people in order to get them to like me. And that's sort of where the self-harm begins, right? You start devaluing yourself. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't sleep with people. Like That's totally fine, right? I don't think there's actually a connection between how early you sleep with someone and how great the relationship is. I actually slept with my partner pretty early on in our dating, sort of TMI. Um, there's no, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're only doing it because you think that that's how you're going to get people to like you, that's where the problem lies. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can completely understand where a lot of people will fall into that trap as well. So how can we maintain those boundaries? I mean, how can we put boundaries in place in the first instance? Because if that's a lot of rejection and if we see, and I think this might be a more of a female one than the male one, if I'm completely honest, without being stereotypical, I think in a way, and I've heard this before, it's like females are the gatekeepers to sex in a way, right? And if a female has been rejected many, many times, they might, they might see that in fact, this is my of actually getting the validation and X and Y and Z, but it's not actually fulfilling what they want. So I'm keen to hear how both females and males, I don't want to just put anyone in that bracket, but how do we start maintaining those boundaries or even put them in place in the first place? Yeah, there definitely is a gender component to this as well, right? So we can totally tie this into what we discussed earlier about the self-love and the needs. And honestly, just starting with asking yourself, do I actually want to have sex with this person, right? It sounds so simple, but I can guarantee you that when you're in a heated situation, when you're on a date with someone, when you're Netflix and chilling, you're not asking yourself those questions because you're focusing on getting validation from the other person in the moment, right? And in that moment, and that's, that's where people start to have issues. They forget themselves in those moments. You know, I know guys that maybe they don't actually want to jump so quickly, but right. But they, they want that sense of validation from, you know, the attractive girl that they've just picked up and they're, they're doing it from that place. And on the other side, we might have women who think that they need to prove themselves by, you know, having sex, being the cool girl to, to win the guy over. And they're doing it for that reason. But you want to ask yourself, do I actually want to have sex with this person? Yes or no. And I, I really believe that you should only say yes if it's a full body yes, if it's coming from the right energy. And whatever happens next, you're not basing your worth on, oh, like, are they going to call me the next day? Or is she going to still, you know, is she going to want to be with me? It can't be dependent on whatever outcome that you're trying to get, but it's got to be in that moment. Do I want to have an intimate experience with that person? And that should be your answer. Yeah, I love that. I think one of the biggest switches I made a couple of years ago or uh, when I did start dating again was not, does this person like me or do is, do I actually like this person? You know, is this person actually worth spending a good amount of time with? And like, I value my time highly. And I was like, if I have to even entertain someone on a date for like, even if it's 90 minutes, that's 90 minutes too much for someone <laughs> I don't want to spend time with. So I think just asking that question and then having like a high enough boundary in order just dates or even second dates and everything like that, I think was a, a massive precursor. So I think, like you said, just questioning yourself and not going with the flow of, I mean, I don't think it's bad all the time, but just actually bringing some consciousness to the situation rather than getting flushed with emotions as well. And onto the next question that I have and 
something that's been really highlighted to me in my recent relationship is that everything that I have now within a relationship is beyond where I possibly could you know, even fathom that it could be. And what that made me realize is in the past, it's like I was settling for significantly less than I really deserved. And if this was possible to me before, like why was I going to X, Y, or Z place? And no disrespect to anyone who I've dated or anything in the past. So I'm wondering how do we realize first that we deserve more and how can we be patient enough to not settle for the first person that comes along, but the one who fits your desires, your dreams and exceeds them? Yeah. Such a good question. You don't know what you know till you got it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> or yeah, it always seems impossible until it happens. So this is totally a belief thing. And actually, I can actually take listeners through an exercise that I like to do with clients. Now, if you take the you know total population and you can divide that by gender of how many eligible singles are available in your country or area, and even if only 1% of them or 0.01% of them would be a good match for you. If you do the math, it's still like hundreds and thousands of people. And we don't, re- we don't realize that. We think, oh, wow, like that's a lot of people. Even if you know, 0.001% of the population would be a good match for me, that's still a heck of a lot of people that could be a good partner for me. And that's the approach that I take with this, right? I don't believe that we only have one soulmate, you know, in the entire universe, but I believe that there is a small population of people, like a very small percentage of people that would be a great fit. But because there's a lot of humans out there, turns out there's a lot of people that can be as, you know, as good as your partner right now, that that sounds kind of bad. Um, But, you know, if you kind of get what I'm saying, there's a right? There's that 1% of people that would be a fantastic match for you. Um, And I get people to start thinking in terms of abundance, right? That you only have to find one of them, right? Mm. And Elliot, you found your one person out of maybe, you know, 50,000 people that could have been a great match, right? And that because you have experienced that once, you know, you could experience that again in the future. You knock on wood, no offense. (laughs) I'm sure it's a great relationship, but you could experience that again because you have identify what that 1% is for you, right? 100%. And I think the funny thing is that just like life did the same with putting, yeah, the universe putting me in my place. It was the same from that perspective as well. It was like, once I accepted that, you know what, if I'm not in a relationship by the time I'm 30 or 32 or 33, that's completely fine. I, I And I really came to peace with that. I was like, I'm very content on my own. I like the way my life looks. And, you know, a few days later, boom, the person comes into my life. And it's like, almost like once you do come from that place, like you said, of abundance and acceptance, it's almost like life will give you that answer. It might not come as soon as you expected, but it it was unbelievably quick for me in the sense of like, okay, acceptance. Okay. Now you can get what what, what we were trying to teach you with this lesson earlier. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. You so you learned your lesson and you just <laughs> delivered. <laughs> yeah. Thank I you, universe. That. And I've got a final question because I know that we're tight for time here. And I just want to maybe just again, very, very question. But if you could highlight some keys to a healthy and secure relationship, I know that you're in a very, very healthy relationship right now. What would you say some of the keys are to maintaining that with you and your partner specifically? Oh yeah, for sure. The number one key to, and I I always say that the secret to sustaining a healthy relationship is actually your ability to regulate your own emotions, right? A lot of people don't think about that. They think about the dynamic, but a lot of relationship issues come from people's inability to deal with their own feelings, right? So whether it's jealousy, um, whether it's fear or 
rejection, like all of these emotions, um, you have to be comfortable at navigating them within yourself first in order to be able to process them uh, in, a, in a relationship, right? And so that's why I love to say that any self-development work that you do with yourself will also benefit your relationship. So number one key is, you know, get some help on working through those emotions and getting better at communicating them and dealing with them within yourself. Um, I guess the second thing is, you know, when I help people with relationships, I don't teach it in terms of your needs and their needs, like my needs and my partner's needs, because my needs are different from my partner's. I have to bathe myself, right? I have to feed myself. I'm not doing that for my partner, right? I'm not bathing and feeding him. I think of it in terms of my relationships needs, sorry, my needs and the relationship needs. Right. What does the relationship require of me? Because your relationship is more than just the sum of you and your girlfriend, but it's it's like a it's its own living, breathing entity. Right. It has its own needs. And maybe today my relationship requires that I spend one hour just connecting with my partner. Maybe today my relationship requires me to let my partner go and hang out with his buddies, right? Because he needs a break. Um, and so I think thinking in terms of me and my relationship uh, is really helpful for a lot of folks. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for that, Gloria. I really do appreciate it. And my final question yeah. is, where can, people, <laughs> where can people find you if they want to follow more of your work? I'm sure they will want to after this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I've got a huge body of work. Um, if you want to check out the Inner Child podcast on Spotify and um, Apple, wherever they stream. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram at by Gloria Zhang. But I actually have a, a free quiz coming out soon where folks can actually identify what their core wound from childhood is to start you know, working on that journey. And it's not up yet, but I think it's going to be at bygloriazang.com slash quiz or maybe I'll send it to you when it's out (laughs) yeah please do we'll put all this stuff in the show notes and if you're listening maybe in a couple of months time then head over and it's probably live by that point right yes Amazing. Well, Gloria, thank you so much for your time today. This has been personally very valuable for myself and I know that it's going to impact a lot of people. So thank you so much for the work that you do. And thank you again for this conversation. Thank you, Elliot. Yeah, Elliot's awesome, guys. (laughs) He is the guy to go to. And this has been really fun for me as well. So thanks, Elliot. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gloria. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.